summers at a mechanic's shop. Now, my job was to take the engines apart uh, so that as they, as they came in uh, for repair, so that somebody who knew what they were doing could put them back together uh, once they'd been fixed. Now, a few of those summers, there was another guy who happened to be dating the owner's daughter, so you can guess how he got the job. But he worked alongside me. And he was an interesting guy. And, and one day, as we were midway through taking apart two different engines, he turned to me and said, would you like to trade? Well, I didn't really know why he wanted to do that. I assumed something was wrong with his and that it was giving him trouble. Uh, and so I didn't really want to do that, but he was the kind of guy who got very out of sorts if he didn't get his way, so we did. My question, you know, remained, though, why Why did you want to do that? If you're halfway through doing something one way and it's going well, well, why would you change course? And Paul asked a similar question to that in Galatians 3, 1 to 9. As we know, false teachers had come to Galatia teaching that Christians uh, it certainly, yes, had to believe in us, but also had to be circumcised as a condition for salvation. And in, in light of that, the sort of imaginary conversation between them and Paul would play out essentially like this. Galatians, didn't you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Well, yes. So faith brought the Spirit into your life. Well, yes. And what is perhaps the greatest blessing of belonging to God? Well, possessing the Spirit as the guarantee of our salvation. And, and again, how did you receive Him? Faith. Did your works contribute? No. So how then, in light of all that, do you think you should continue in the Christian life? Well, by works. And Paul highlights the um, inconsistency in the Galatians' thought process. This section follows Paul's confrontation with Peter about how Peter had compromised and readopted the Mosaic ceremonial practices as marks of proper Christians. The point showed how the gospel, which Paul and the other apostles commonly understood, was authoritative over false teachers' announcements, new new teachings, or any compromises even among renowned teachers. And Paul's main issue in the section before us was that those who follow Abraham in truly receiving God's promises have to do so in the same way as Abraham, by faith. By faith alone. And so our main point this morning, our main point, is God's true people begin and continue in right relationship with him by faith alone. God's true people begin and continue in right relationship with him by faith alone. We're going to think about that in three points the questions, our quest, 
and the qualification. So first, let's think about the questions. And essentially what we're after here is that set of rhetorical questions that Paul asks in verses 1 to 6. In the ancient world, magic was a cultural feature that everyone had to reckon with. Many, many people believed that formulas existed, incantations, right, spoken formulas that bend or control the effects of nature or even the deities. Paul himself had to go up against the influence of magical thought. Uh, In Ephesus, when when he encountered the cult of Artemis in Acts 19. And so, as Paul turned from telling the story of his apostleship, which culminated in that in confrontation with, with Peter, he began his direct address to the problem in Galatia by asking them, what magician has taken over your minds to make you buy these gospel-undermining ideas? Who has bewitched you? That's perhaps not as tame as the question comes across in our culture today. And after that, he proceeded in verses 1 to 6 to ask them a a series of rhetorical questions to show them how foolish their present approach was. So, what are these questions? And and why would would use them to make his point? So, the first thing is, as we've touched on already, he asks why, or who has bewitched them, verse 1. And now Paul knew who the false teachers were. So, He's not asking about who are the false teachers in your midst. Uh, that doesn't adequately explain the Galatians' changed mind, just that somebody taught them incorrectly. After all, Paul himself had explained the gospel so clearly to them that it was as if Christ had been crucified right in front of them. Gospel preaching puts the value of Christ's death on display so that there can be no mistake about his saving work. And so the only explanation, rhetorically, Paul says, somebody used to must have used magic to get you to change your mind. And in verses 2 to 6, he, he pushed that central point forward through five more questions. The three areas that he interrogated were competency, experience, and knowledge of God. And so he asked them if they're competency. He asked them if they are foolish, what their conversion experience was like, and what God has already done for them. Verse 3, although it's two questions... Uh, there, I mean, there's two question marks there. It makes one point, right? Asking if the Galatians were so foolish as to think that you begin the Christian life in one way and then somehow continue on some radically different premise. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? If God works salvation among you, do you really think your strength is the way ahead? We're back to my colleague in the mechanics shop, right? Asking to to switch projects for no reason. He wanted to change of course despite how the present track was working. 
And the Galatians had that same outlook. They began being Christians by the Spirit's work, bringing them to faith. Now, they, after the fact, they had bought this idea that the ongoing path for life with God was works of the law. Paul's view is obvious as he notes, this approach is foolish. Right? Their competency is in question because they ought to know better. If the Spirit started this, you don't have the power to finish it. After questioning their competency, though, Paul raised another question about their experience in verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Now, there is a way to nuance this in a sense. So that word translated suffer can have a can have this specific meaning, you know, of, of suffering, a painful experience. It can also be more general, just experience, which is, I think, what Paul meant here. He asked, if they have experienced so many, if have you encountered, have you gone through, have you experienced so many things, namely, the things he tells them in verse 5 as the Spirit's work and God's miracles. Have you experienced these things and still not understood the point? Imagine, to get this, imagine that you want to learn to cook. So you sign up for a course with a Michelin star chef, right? So somebody like Marcus Waring is your teacher, and and he gives you a, a master course in cookery. And you see his techniques in all sorts of things, braising, roasting, baking. You get the picture and you watch him do it. And then you get to the end of your course, and for your final exam, you decide to cook an unseasoned chicken breast in the toaster. Everything you saw was for naught. Right? That's the point Paul drives home in verses 5 and 6. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? The Galatians needed to remember how God saved them and saved every single one of His people. The how is in question. God supplies the Spirit to His people, but not because they earned it. God works miraculous things among His people, but not because they earned it. Rather, He works mightily on their behalf in salvation as they trust in Him. God won't start requiring works for the Galatians to be saved because that's never been His procedure. Abraham, the father of believers, proves. So the questions, the questions demonstrate the Galatians' foolishness in asking to trade projects from faith to works. It won't work. But that brings us to our our second point 
our quest. Our quest. I want to I want to pause for a minute in this in this point and and reflect at the juncture of this passage. So we've kind of come to that transition point. I want to I want to teach you a distinction. Maybe well, maybe I'm not teaching. Maybe you've heard it, but I, I want to think about a distinction. Um, and maybe maybe this will sound a bit scholastic, but I think if you hang with me, this proves to be a very helpful distinction if we incorporate it into the way that we think about the Christian life. So, Westminster Confession, 1901 talks about how God gave the law to Adam. And it says this, God gave to Adam a law as as a covenant of works by which he bound Adam and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with the power and ability to keep it. So, let's underline the factor there for us to consider. At creation, God gave the law as a covenant. As a covenant, the law required perfect obedience in order to obtain a reward from God. At creation. On the other hand, on the other hand, Westminster Confession 19.2 follows this point up and says, this law, so the same, the moral law, God's moral law, this law, after his fall, Adam's fall, continued as a perfect rule of righteousness. After the fall, God gave the law not as a covenant anymore, but as a rule. What's the difference? What's the difference between those two things? And how could they possibly matter? (laughs) Well, first let's think about the distinction. Let's illustrate the distinction between the law as a covenant and as a rule. How can this work? Okay, so maybe I give Sarah a ring, right? But that could entail a few different meanings, can't it? I might give her a ring on Valentine's Day. Simply to show my affection. So in this case, in this case, this ring serves as a reminder of my love. On our wedding day, though, I I gave her a ring saying, with this ring, I thee wed. In that instance, I used this ring to initiate our new relationship, giving it symbolically at least, as the covenant of marriage with this ring. Both situations could use the same exact ring, can't they? In one instance, however, the ring carried all the privileges and obligations of our marriage covenant. In the other, it did not have that same binding force. And so we see how the same thing can be given with alternative functions. The the same is true with God's law. At creation, God gave the law as a covenant. The law came to Adam as the terms, 
the conditions for earning blessings. After the fall, though, once that covenant was broken, people are sinful, they cannot honor the terms. After the fall, particularly for his people, the law is no longer a covenant, but is a rule. It guides life, but is not the condition for life. No no longer can we use the law to earn any blessing from God. It won't work. That function is done. That covenant is broken. The law is something different for us. Now, for Christians, the law should serve as our guide as we walk with God. Why is that distinction useful? Christian, how how do you think about God's law in your life? And as as we unpack this a little bit, I'm not looking for the Sunday school answer. Right? I I mean in a sense I just gave it to you in the confession. I I I know that you understand what you're supposed to say, but I'm asking you to search your heart. We all know that we should try our best to offer our best obedience to God, but but Christian why? Why do you think that is? Even if you know the right answer, really in in your gut, what do you think is going to happen as you strive to keep the law? So to put this a different way in terms of our distinction, believer, how do you think God gives the law to you? Do do you, and let's be more pointed about this, right? Do you believe that God has given you the law as the condition to earn or maintain His approval for you? Do you think that God's law comes to you as a condition, as, as the terms for God's blessings? on your life? When you reflect upon how you truly believe, not, not, not what you know to be true in your mind, but how you operate in your heart and the ways that you, you think about God in that sense, do you believe that God is inspecting your obedience to determine His approval of you or how to bless you? I think we all know that we have at least at least seasons where we act as if we are Adam. As if we are Adam and God has given us the law as a covenant of works. We feel that internal push to, to measure up for God. Those who delude ourselves to think that, yep, doing well, we become self-righteous as though this I've done all my life. 
those who are honest about our sin and failure, if we think about the law that way, if we think of it as a covenant of works, we are deflated and overwhelmed. And we take it on as as our quest to use God's law as a covenant and earn or maintain His approval, His favor by our works. So, Christian, Paul's questions land right home for you. Did you receive the Spirit by works or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now perfected by the flesh? God has fully accepted you and has set His love upon you entirely in Jesus Christ. How can we know that? How can we know that? Let's think about our last point. The qualification. So, Christians like the Galatians, and often we ourselves, need to to reckon, need to reckon with our tendency to default to thinking that God treats us like Adam. That believers have the law not as a rule, but as a covenant. We resort to our original creational programming in the covenant of works as though our obedience is the standard for warranting God's approving and blessing. And by contrast, Paul, Paul, Paul teaches us that we relate to God by the covenant of grace. Now, we looked at the detail of this, this category, this doctrine, when we were in the book of Jude, so we're not going to go all the way back through it. The the sum, though, is the main point is that God made one way of salvation in Christ for all His people who believe in the Savior regardless of when they live. Some believers, such as Abraham, such as David, such as Moses, some believers trusted in the Christ who would come They trusted in the Savior who was ahead. And we trust in the the Christ who has come, who's behind. Christ is not directly in front of either of us. That was for a very limited few people during the incarnation while Christ was on earth. All of us look to Christ in some direction, some looking forward, some looking back. But salvation has always been by trusting in Christ as our mediator. And Paul makes that point in verses 6 to 9. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then, know then, if you remember our lead up to this point was, how do we know? Know then that those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And 
the Scripture. Note this. Think about what's, what Paul is writing here. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that salvation was going to go to the nations by faith, the Scripture preached the Gospel. The Gospel isn't new. The Scripture preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham. To Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith, those who are of faith, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All the way back to Abraham, and truly, further back than that, as Hebrews 11 demonstrates for us, God dealt with His people by by one principle. If you want to be the people of God, faith in Christ. And by that, you receive God's promises. Specifically concerning the Mosaic ceremonies that these false teachers in Galatia were pushing upon the church, Paul will remind us in in verses ahead that Abraham is different than Moses and came before Moses. For salvation, when it comes to the plan of salvation, the promise precedes the law. When God announced His promises to Abraham, it was the Gospel. Scripture preached the Gospel in advance. Abraham, and he believed. That certainly sidelines the Mosaic Law as the condition for salvation because that promise to be received by faith preceded the law precisely because God was going to save the Gentiles. And let's take a moment. What that means is precisely because God was going to justify you by faith. He was going to justify everybody outside of the Mosaic Covenant, who would trust in Jesus by their faith. And that's why Moses is not Abraham. There are two ways right, that we can, we can pull this home. First, I think we, we have to keep in mind here that, that Paul wrote Galatians to address the church about their community life. The the gospel premise was in danger, but not because they were arguing theoretically. It's because of what they were doing. And so he was addressing their community life, their fellowship. So the teeth in Paul's reminder about salvation by faith alone concerns how we treat one another. If God, if God accepts you by grace alone, what do we demand from each other? Of course, we disappoint one another. We're sinners, right? It's going to happen. We disappoint each other. That is, is built in to the very idea of Christianity. How do we handle it? What do we do 
when that happens? Do we hold grudges? Do we look down on one another? Do we foster bitterness over ways that we feel wronged? Is that our approach? Because that's refusing to give someone your approval because they've not met the demands of the law or perhaps your law. Certainly, right, we've got to qualify this, and certainly we don't brush over wrongs that are done to people when they are of substance, right? When true wrong is done, we we address that. But are are we open to reconciliation? And are we expecting that to happen when everyone repents, as should be easy when we know we're all in the same position of sinners needing grace. If God does not give us the law as a covenant to earn or maintain his favor, let us not treat one another in the church as if we give the law to each other as a covenant to earn or maintain our favor with friends and family here. Second, second, everyone needs to hear, right? This is a church that the Apostle Paul just planted within a matter of months, it seems. And we see that they have already forgotten the main idea of the gospel. And so we see that everyone needs to hear frequently Paul's main point about how we relate to God. We apply, if we, if we connect this to the, the first application, we apply grace alone to our relationships together only as we grasp the majesty of grace alone in our relationship with God. So the one, the one qualification, right, for God's acceptance, if you, if the, the lingering question is, All this stuff about the law as as a covenant and as a rule. How am I accepted in God's sight then? Faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the one qualification. Faith in Jesus Christ. We feel the pressure. Measure up for God. And certainly I'm glad that Christians desire to be faithful and and please their, their Lord and Savior. But... You have to know the law cannot be a covenant for you. It cannot because Christ has fulfilled that for you. All the conditions that the law demands for God's favor or blessing have been met. Someone has ticked the box for you. And if that's done... There's no way for you to do it again. Christ has fulfilled the law for you. And if you trust in Jesus, your sins have been forgiven. Entirely. And God has given you a family. We see that here. The family of Abraham. You are... Abraham's children brought into this group of brothers and sisters by faith. 
so we give ourselves to grace. Right? Radically, truly, and fully hand ourselves into the hands of our Maker and Redeemer, trusting not in ourselves, but entirely in the Lord Jesus. We remind ourselves that God has made us His family, not a new family, an old family. Not, not because of how wonderful we manage to be, but because He loves us deeply. We live out of... Note this. If you, if you get one thing, here's, here's the last thing I'm going to say. Write it down. We live out of, out of, not for, God's acceptance. Christian, you live out of, because of, not trying to gain God's acceptance. Let's pray. Father, we know that this is a world that has many demands on us. We know that we are constantly hit with a list of what we must do. And we pray that as we think about our relationship with you, we realize that the question is not what must I do, but what has been done. Because Christ has done everything. In the doing and dying of Jesus Christ, we are accepted in your sight. And as we look to live faithfully for you, we follow your law as a rule, not as a covenant. Being brought into this family, this family of Abraham, joined together with all the saints who will praise your name forever. And as that family, we come to this table before us and give thanks that we can dine together in this way, celebrating our unity Not because of what we have done, but because you give. You gave your son, and you give us this meal in which you give your son to us and give each one of us to each other. We pray that that would weigh on us and inform the things we do in the moments ahead. We pray these things knowing that we need your help to remember them knowing that we need you to work in our hearts. But because you have been so richly good to us, we also know that we need to seek you for the things in our life. And so we give you thanks, we give you immense thanks for the sustaining grace that you have provided over the last year. We we see this Sunday as a transition of sorts. As we sing your praises out loud, Lord, we realize that we are in a new phase. We pray that we are in a lasting new phase. There have been many things that we need to recount to your praise over the last year. We have have dealt with video sermons, and we, we give you thanks for using those as limited as they have been. We have dealt with songless worship, And we are glad that in these moments we can proclaim your praises out loud together as the family of God. We give you thanks, though, that you have given us means to distribute your word and that we have been able to be together even without singing. 
you have provided for us in these things. We, we know that we are thankful for these Zoom prayer meetings and we're thankful for how many people come and we realize the limitations of not being together and so we are glad, we are thankful to you for having blessed those things, for that prayer meeting that you have used to bring more and more people to be comfortable praying amongst their brothers and sisters in the church, that you have brought more people to pray together, to reflect on your word even briefly. We give you thanks for using even video Bible studies or the house groups on Zoom. We know the limitations of these things. And God, you have been rich to use them nonetheless to further us in faith. You have so abundantly distributed blessings to us. You have given immense provision. We we know that so many congregations have have dealt with endless seasons of grief because people have died, because health has been a constant fear. We are thankful that you have, by and large, so well protected us. We are thankful that where so many have had such deep concerns about finances, that you have so richly sustained. We know that there are concerns. We know that there are issues where we need to seek your help still. And yet, by and large, you have provided. There are churches that have been without a meeting place, have not been able to be indoors to worship protected from the elements, and you have given that to us, and we are thankful. Throughout throughout this year, as tumultuous as it has been, we have been able to be in this room together to praise our God. And we thank you for that. God, especially in this vacancy season, we thank you. We give you praise for our elders. We thank you for, for Dick and Gabriel and Adam and for, for Bob Aykroyd. We are thankful for these men and the way that pastoral care is so much in their hearts and they think thoroughly for the people of this church. We are deeply blessed in our session. And we give you praise for giving us these men to lead us. We're thankful for Laura and the work she does in administration to keep us right, to keep me right, to help us get things out, to get people where they need to be. We're thankful for Jennifer and the work she does as our treasurer to make sure that we are wise and sound in our finances. We are thankful for our deacons and the way that they take so seriously their work to, to make sure that the material needs of this congregation are provided for. You are good to us, and we thank you for these people. And we ask that you would shower each of them and their families with immense blessing. We do know that we need your help. We know that people are grieving. We pray for Anna Maria, for the Biggs family, for others who still have, even if, even if times of grief are 
further in the past, we, we know that these things linger and we pray for them and that you would provide comfort for them. That you would provide encouragement when their hearts are sad. For those who need work, Lord, we pray that you would meet that need. That you would provide for, for those who are struggling even to make ends meet. We pray that you, the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who owns every molecule in this universe, would give to them, give to them work that they might provide for themselves and their families. We pray for those who are about to move on. We pray for the Hampsons and for Angela as they look to the future and the the next place that you will send them. We are thankful for our time with them. And we pray that you will richly bless them in the next place that you put them. And will make them a blessing as they have been here to their next church family. We pray for us as we seek wisdom in the things before us. As we navigate our way out of a time of restriction. As we navigate our way through a vacancy. Lord God, we need you. And we come back to Paul's words. And we ask that we would not do this by works of the law, but that we would continue in these decisions by the Spirit. Grant us wisdom. Grant us dependence upon him. And we seek all of these things, hoping for your mercy, trusting that you give us because of Christ. Amen.